Welcome to Rooted in Revelation. This is your host, Nate. Uh, as always, Dallas is with me. Uh, this is a place where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation and mind, desire, and will. And with us today, we have another special guest, Brian Knapp. Uh, he is uh, another podcaster or slash vlogger. Um, you can find him on YouTube. And they, uh, him and Chris Bolt have a website and YouTube channel called revelationary.org. So if you guys ever want to check that out, definitely do so. They have great content. They're relatively new, but they've they've done a lot of stuff together in the past. So welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Yeah, so I guess we'll hop right in. Maybe you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe your story, how you became a Christian, how you got involved with presuppositional yeah. apologetics, and yeah, whatever you'd like to share regarding those things. <laughs> Sure thing. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, so I grew up in a Christian home and um, had very godly parents, went uh, to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time the doors were open, I think was how it was It was told to me is, is when we should be in church. So this was central New York State, just south of Syracuse. So um, we were very, I would say, very more along the conservative evangelical line. I was not into apologetics at all when I was growing up. Um, and again, an evangelical church. So my, my views have changed quite a bit since then. But right around 2000, when 9-11 happened, um, I was getting involved interacting with people on the internet, which was the, the thing to do at that point. And um, got involved with some people who were far better at philosophy and critical thinking than I was. And I was there trying to share my faith and I was just getting hammered to death. And the, the topic that kept coming back and just, you know, crushing me into the ground was God's foreknowledge and free will, right? Pretty common apologetic topic, not even God's decree, just his foreknowledge at this point. I was not a, um, a, a reformed or Calvinist at that point. And um, I went to a local Lifeway Christian bookstore and met a cool guy. His name is Skip, and he and I became really good friends. And Skip was just getting into this thing called presuppositional apologetics. And at this point, they were actually having conferences up in the um, Newark, Delaware area once, I think it was once a year. I went to a couple of them. And they, you know, they didn't have Bonson at that point because he had passed away, but they had some people who knew him and had interacted with him. So between going to these conferences and spending time with my friend Skip and some other friends listening to Bonson's lectures, I really began to um, grab a hold of Presup as an apologetic method. And interestingly enough, I came to a reformed Calvinistic view of scripture after the fact. <laughs> it's a little bit backwards. Um, I know a lot of people who, who are, say, Presbyterian, for instance, um, Van Til is just part of, you know, who they read and, and that particular approach to apologetics is part of who they are. So for me, I kind of came to it backwards, started off as a presupper and then began to see the theology that um, underpinned that and um, moved in that particular direction theologically. Um, around about, I would say 2005, 2006, Chris and I, Chris Bolt uh, that you mentioned, and I met up online in a internet relay chat, IRC chat room. And um, he was getting into presup as well. And as it turned out, he wasn't too far from me geographically. So we actually met up and became good friends and started chatting back and forth. Um, and eventually he, he went on and got his PhD in philosophy and um, is a real avid presupper as well. We, um, 
we started this website called Choosing Hats uh, around that time frame, and predominantly it was Chris writing. And I, I contributed some, and another fella uh, by, that goes by the handle Razor's Kiss contributed as well. And then we sort of moved on from there. And um, a few months ago, maybe six months ago, Chris and I started talking about putting together um, a, a YouTube channel and doing video podcasting because people don't like to sit and read anymore, right? They, they want their content delivered through a podcast, audio-wise, or through video. So yeah, we've um, actually our first week, we, I think we pumped out three episodes in our first week. Um, and then reality caught up with us and we've slowed down a little bit, but there's, there's a lot of ground that we plan on covering. We've started uh, talking with people to have on as guests. So um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a Vantillian presuppositionalist and there are a lot of different people out there that use the term presup and have you know different flavors of, of belief, but that's, I think is the way to describe my particular approach the best. Right. Yeah. Maybe before we dive into those different flavors of presuppositional apologetics, I was thinking maybe, you know, you mentioned coming to a reformed understanding of scripture and obviously and assuming the reformed doctrines as well that kind of all formulate. Um, so for someone, you know, maybe relatively new to all these concepts and ideas, like what, what exactly, um, what is this big God theology that you mentioned? And, you know, the Calvinism, what is Calvinism? Mm -hmm. What is reform theology? What are these terms mean for, you know, Dallas is a relatively uh, newer believer and I'm sure he'd be like, you know, what's Calvinism, right? You know, what's reform theology and how do them things formulate uh, this bi biblical methodology of presuppositional apologetics. Does that make sense to yeah, yeah. Trying to ask? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So I, I will say I would classify myself as a Reformed Baptist, which is um, something that doesn't exist, <laughs> according to a lot of my friends who are Presbyterian. You know, you can't be Reformed and Baptist. So I, I don't really know a better way to, to qualify myself. But I, I say that because I'm not full-blown Reformed theology, covenant theology. Um, it's I'm a work in progress as far as that, as far as that goes. That's not... Um, that's not the heritage that I grew up in. So, but Calvinism, I, I guess the best way for me to describe it is that we will hold a very high view of God's sovereignty. Um, this kind of goes back to the, to the topic that I was talking about that got me involved in apologetics. And that is the sovereignty of God, you know, his plan, his providence, and how that relates to we as his creatures. So a big part of of this is God as creator and we are his creatures. So there's a distinction between the creator and, and the creature. And that, that comes out in our apologetic as well. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a very high view of God's sovereignty. It's not that we don't believe um, humans have freedom of a sort. And, uh, the, but that's where most of the differences between where I came from and where I am now. And I would say the majority of the the debates that go on between Calvinists and those who are not Calvinistic, they would they would be over the nature of the will, or at least they should be, because to me that's kind of the foundational um, the foundational concept. You know, you you'll read things um, about Calvinism that reference the acronym TULIP, 
which talk about, you know, the depravity of man and, and election and uh, the atonement and those kind of things. And that, you know, we could spend hours getting into that. Um, but I would say primarily it's if I had to if I had to err on, on one way or another, I would say I'm much more concerned about God being sovereign than I am about even myself having free will. I remember um, talking with my friend Skip as we were going through precept and I was starting to lean towards Calvinism. I finally came to the conclusion, you know, if God created me for no other purpose uh, than to send me to hell for an eternity, okay. Now that's a really that's a really hard thing to say, right? Sometimes. Um, and I'm not saying he did that. I'm just saying if God is God, he has the ability and the right to do what he wants. So, you know, I kind of took things to the, the extreme and said, if that's what everything, if that's how God had determined the entirety of history to run, then so be it. Right. And for me, that was the first time I think that I really began to see the difference between who God is and, and who I am and began to appreciate the fact that I am one of his children and Christ died for me and, and I will spend eternity with him. So, yeah, that's, that's really great. And, and too, you know, I think sometimes, I mean, this is kind of a sidebar comment, but like, um, I guess some people would take that as like, Oh, so you think you're special because God chose you or, <laughs> you know, like some people could take it that way. Uh, what would be a comment you would make to that objection or that comment, I guess you could say, or assertion. Sure. Well, you know, the second letter in TULIP is is um, unconditional, unconditional election. And what that means is God did not elect us or choose us based on looking ahead and seeing what we would be, what we would become, the things that we would do, what kind of a person we would be. That was not how God chose the elect. The elect were chosen by his own um, his own will, his own plan. So there's nothing special about me at all. There's nothing special about anybody from that perspective. It's not anything that we have done that makes us any better than anyone else. Um, and, and you're right. People will look at, look at you and say, wow, you must think you're special. Well, no, actually, I don't. I, I think I'm far from it. In fact, I think Calvinists are, hold a much stronger view of the depravity of man um, because it is not something that's initiated by us, it's initiated by God, we just don't factor into it other than responding to what God does in our hearts. That's really good. Dallas, uh, any comments from uh, what's going through your head so far? Well, you know, I, I mean, I was raised Christian and everything too. Like my parents, they're awesome Christians. And, but recently i got back into it so i mean i'm just soaking this in i got through a lot of matthew today because i've been reading that but uh yeah i'm pretty much just listening at this point okay <laughs> that's good 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 yeah um so yeah i guess maybe we'll uh maybe kind of talk a little more about um so you mentioned bonson uh mm -hmm. and and before we started the show we you know we mentioned some other guys uh james anderson john frame um you know, Van Til himself. And, um, and we were, you know, something that came up, a, a reason I kind of was interested in wanting to talk with you about this is obviously, I believe you're more knowledgeable about these things. And you probably know the different nuancing that's going on um, with these different Van Tilian, you know, camps. Uh, so, I mean, 
would you be able to maybe kind of define some of the different different things within the Van Til camp with say Bonson and the frame and the Oliphant and some Lane Tipton, these different kind of guys? Um, I can probably, I can tell you pretty clearly what Bonson, um, you know, where he stood in relationship to Van Til, mostly because that's, um, he is the source for me, at least, you know, my, my understanding and education, as it were, of Presup came by listening to Bonson, Bonson lectures and, and reading his books and reading Van Til as well. Um, when it comes to Anderson, um, Dr. Anderson and I have interacted some. I'm an avid reader of his website. Dr. Oliphant, not so much. I have, I have some of his books as well, um, but I don't, I don't know all the details of where he's at. Um, and unfortunately, uh, for for me, Frame is is just kind of um, somebody I haven't read nearly as much of as I should. I think I came across him in the Five Views on Apologetics book, which was I think probably the, one of the first apologetic books I I read, and and he was representing Presup in that book actually. So I mean, I guess the way I would categorize the different camps would be this: you know, Van Til is very hardcore in your face. Christianity is the only reasonable worldview, um, only reasonable philosophical system that that we can hold to. It's natural for for all people to do that. Actually, it, it, you know, it, it makes the most sense for everyone to believe in God. Of course, they don't, and Christianity tells us why. But his, um, his perspective is that, you know, God is truly Lord of our lives and not just Lord from the perspective of us worshiping him, but, but he, he's Lord as far as our intellect as well. Um, you know, unbelief is a moral issue. It's an ethical issue. It's not merely an um, intellectual issue. And so um, Van Til really stresses that. He stresses the, the distinction between um, covenant breakers and covenant keepers. He stresses the fact that there's no neutrality in our reasoning. There is no place that we can go where we stand outside of our views of knowledge and, and morality and what's real and what's beautiful, those kind of things. And all of that comes out in his, um, in his apologetic. And you would hear him say, uh, you know, Christian or the existence of the Christian God is the precondition of intelligibility. And we can talk about what all those those words mean. But it's not just a, a way of thinking, per se. You know, Van Til would say we know objectively that the Christian God does exist. And um, Bonson would be very close to that, probably the closest of anybody who studied under Van Til, um, like Frame did as well. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Anderson is not quite as, um, I would say, uh, what's the best way to put it? He's not a hardcore Van Tillian by any means. I think he, he appreciates Van Til's approach. He appreciates the transcendental argument. And, um, I just don't think that he feels as strongly about its success in being able to provide certainty of, of, uh, you know, the Christian worldview as compared to, to Bonson or Van Til. Um, I think Dr. Oliphant would be closer to, to Dr. Bonson. Um, maybe not, you know, probably um, <clears throat> more steadfast and, and more along the same lines as he is, but um, 
you know, Dr. Anderson, I think is, is probably not. I do respect Dr. Anderson a lot. I've learned a lot by, by reading his blog and, and following him and interacting with him as well. So that probably doesn't give you <clears throat> the clearest breakdown, um, <laughs> perhaps that no. you were looking for, but. No, I think that, no, that's, I think that's great. Um, you know, I actually thinking about uh, TAG, you know, the transcendental argument, right? Yep. Um, I remember reading a post uh, James Anderson put, uh, pushed out on Progon. Is it Prognosico? I think. Prognosico or Prognosico. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the Greek for Forno for or something. For Forno. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, well, he had this thing. Uh, he had one on talking about epistemology, like how we know and how we show uh, the truth of Christianity. And he had that distinction between those two things. Um, are you aware, are you familiar with that at all? That So let's see, it is Prognosco. I just, I just took a look here, um, mm -hmm. dot com and showing versus knowing. Yeah. I think what, I don't remember the article, but if I, if I know his theology, he's probably making the distinction between how God reveals himself and how we are aware of and, and can, um, maybe more from an apologetic perspective, how we can answer the skeptic and say, here, here's the process, or here's why I'm justified in believing that God exists. So it's it's the experience and the the activity of knowing versus being able to form a narrative that um, explains to somebody else in an apologetic encounter, perhaps. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And and um, this is kind of a random question. So reformed epistemology. Do you, are you aware yep. of that at all? And yeah, and I guess if you, you'd be, if you'd be okay, maybe you want to talk about the different methodologies, the different kind sure. of, you know, classical evidential, um, reformed epistemology, like, uh, if you'd be happy to maybe describe and maybe help, help us understand these different schools of thought regarding apologetics and the sure. defense of the faith. Sure. Let me, let me just start by saying, um, I've noticed there's a lot of, especially within the precept camp, um, there are those who, who will operate at a very surface level. And um, I, I'm, not, I'm not belittling or, or, or saying anything like that. It's just the, the typical, um, <clears throat> they, they think it's the silver bullet from an apologetic perspective. And you'll hear certain catchphrases that they use, but they don't go very deep. Um, and that's not to say anything about them as an individual, whether they've studied it or not. That's just you know, that's my observation of how a lot of presuppers will um, interact with unbelievers. And then they seem to take this massive leap and, and dive way down into the weeds and get into epistemology and metaphysics and everything. And talking about different ways of knowing and internalism versus externalism and different types of epistemology. And, you know, if you are a Christian and you are in an apologetic encounter with an unbeliever, you don't want to go there, right? I mean, it's it's one thing to understand and be able to defend the method you're using and Christianity. But in my experience, most unbelievers are not interested in epistemology. Many don't even know what the term means. Um, and I only say that as a um, to, to kind of give us um, focus, I think. Um, we can spend a lot of time going way into the weeds and, and some people need to do that. I think um, Christian philosophers should do that. But for those of us, the average person, the lay person, you know, we are called to set Christ apart, 
in our heart to put him first and to always have an answer ready for the, for the reason for the hope that's witnessed, right? And, and we don't need to get into epistemology to do that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it. So let's, let's go ahead and talk about that. Um, epistemology is a philosophical term that speaks about how we know things. It's a theory of knowledge. And it's something I would dare say, you know, the majority of people have never even thought about. I, I never thought about it until, you know, 2001 or whatever it was when I got into this. Um, and there are, believe it or not, different ways, different theories of how we come to know things, how we as, as individuals. And no surprise, as a Christian, um, I believe the Christian narrative in scripture paints a very clear picture of God as the creator, and we are his creatures, and he has created us in such a way that we can learn about him through his revelation to us. And that is not only the revelation we see when we look around us, but it's the revelation that we have internally in our ability to reason. And it's the revelation we see when we interact with other humans and we have to make moral decisions, etc. So all of those things to say, underneath the surface of these things that we claim to know is a process that we learn that we um, that would be called epistemology, which is how we know what we know. And um, there's a very, uh, I think, helpful way of thinking of this that that Chris Bolt brought up in one of our earlier podcasts on, on Revelationary. And I don't remember who he was quoting, but he was talking about the difference between thin reasoning and thick reasoning. Yeah, I think that was Joshua uh, Crawl something or Josh. Kr I, I remember I, that was one of the ones I listened to. Yeah, yeah. I remember you talking about thin reasoning. And what was the other one? Thick reasoning. Um, thick reasoning. Thick. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, that's fine. So, and I think that's a good, a good way to visualize what goes on. You know, like if I walk outside um, and I look up in the sky and I see, I'm going to use the example everybody uses, but I see what appear to me to be raindrops falling and I feel them on my hands and I go back inside and say to my wife, hey, it's raining outside. And <clears throat> she might be a little skeptical of that and say, oh, I'm looking out over here and I can see the sun. And I would say, no, I know it's raining. And, you know, I would be very surprised if she said to me, how do you know it's raining? You know, what's your, <laughs> what's your epistemology and can you justify that belief? Um, but that's essentially what epistemology is about is, you know, it's getting beyond the thin reasoning, which is, assuming that my senses are reliable and taking in the evidence of the water hitting my face and, and looking back and uh, using my intellect and my memory to say, oh, this is rain. And, and I can, I can, you know, I can be pretty confident of that. That's about as deep as most people would go, I would say. But if, if we want to go deeper and say, well, how do you, how do you actually know what, what is your justification for claiming that that is rain falling and not some other, um, you know, maybe, maybe your senses are fooling you or maybe you're the brain in the vat or in the matrix or whatever. Um, the thick reasoning is when you start to look at the foundations, you start to look at the, the most basic part, the web of beliefs. And the, the big challenge in epistemology is if, if one belief, like my belief that it's raining, is justified by something more basic, 
like my belief that my senses are generally reliable. Well, what is what is that belief based on? And then you, you can just, there's different ways to picture this and different epistemologies have different ways of viewing it. But essentially you, you have this issue of constantly having to justify your belief with something more basic or something that's back of, as Van Til would say, that particular belief. And if you think about it, you can imagine that you can just keep going. If a belief needs to be justified by some other more basic belief, well then what about that belief? How, how are you gonna justify that? You need to go back and find a more basic belief. And then you just run into this infinite regress of belief upon belief upon belief. And so I would say the major difference in the different schools of epistemology is what do you do with that problem? You know, you can't go on forever, I would argue. Some epistemologies would say you actually can. Some epistemologies would say um, you don't need to know what all of those lower level beliefs are. Um, there's just a whole variety of them. From a, from a Christian presuppositional perspective, there is a unique solution to that. And I would say unique because I don't from my perspective, I don't know of other epistemologies that try to solve this infinite regress in the same way that presuppositionalism does. Um, so let me just step back here because you asked about reformed epistemology. So Alvin Plantiga would be the name that would come to mind. He was a major contributor in that area. And he would say that, that those foundational beliefs, the most basic beliefs, um, we are, um, they are what would be called properly basic beliefs. So they wouldn't be justified by other beliefs underneath them. They would be beliefs that are justified based on um, other factors, like we have, uh, you know, our cognitive skills are, are functioning properly, et cetera. And he, he would say God is actually, belief in God is a properly basic belief. And then you can build from there. Um, Presuppositionalism is going to say that we start with the reality of the existence of the Christian God. And this is why it is so unique. It's unique because our foundation, as it were, our most basic beliefs are not like this minimal set of beliefs. There's, um, there's a concept out there um, known as Occam's razor, that the, the fewer assumptions you have to make in trying to explain something, the better. The, 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 the simpler explanation is probably is more likely the, the um, accurate one. And that carries over into a lot of philosophical systems where people try to minimize the number of things that they bring to the table, which, you know, I think in, in our daily lives is a good thing to do. But from an epistemological standpoint, I think it's a, a huge mistake. And even broader than that, from a philosophical standpoint, I, I think the appropriate approach as Christians is for us to presuppose the truth of the Christian worldview. So that means a Christian theory of knowledge. You know, how do we know things? What do we think the Bible tells us um, about how we go about learning things and being able to be justified in saying, this belief of ours is true. How do we know what exists? How do we know God exists? How do we know other people exist or the world outside of our brains exists? Um, what's right and wrong, right? The, 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 the different major um, subdivisions within philosophy. Um, and 
Presop is going to bring an entire worldview, an entire philosophical system, and start with that as opposed to starting with a minimal set of basic beliefs. Or, um, you know, there's this thing called foundationalism <clears throat> where there are basic, well, there are foundational beliefs, but they are not, um, they're not justified in the same way that beliefs above them are justified. Um, my eyes are getting glazed over just talking about this. I'm sure yours are <laughs> as well, if you're new to this. Um, but that's where a lot of pre-suppers tend to go. And I think it would be better if fewer of them did that and more of us spent our time, um, not at the thin reasoning level, at the thick reasoning level, but not delving down into different epistemologies. And and because um, again, that's not something we're going to we're going to run into in most apologetic encounters in my experience. Right. So, yeah, that'd be a good place to go next. I, what, what are some of those? Uh, did you want to say something, Dallas? Cause I see you. Well, I was just gonna, Oh uh, wait, hold on. Is this, is this, can you hear this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That does throw me off, but I was just going to let you reassure you a little bit that my eyes could glaze over from a Berenstein bears book. <laughs> actually keep intrigued and i really am just trying to figure it out you know so yeah great great yeah yeah good good yeah but i guess going uh onward um you mentioned you know that's not you know getting into all of them real you know uh was it thick reasoning yeah uh thick reasoning with all the epistemo uh epistemology kind of diving deep into that and you're saying you know that's just not really the practical things we face uh with talking to say a, you know uh, a practical atheist or someone that's just parroting things that they see in memes or whatever the case right right uh, the bible's this fairy tale uh jesus didn't exist you know all that you know fun stuff that people get excited to talk about or make you know great assertions to us about uh right. but so what are some of those common things you run into? And, and I mean, how do, how do we deal with those common things that we might run into? Uh, yeah. Well, I think probably the most common criticism you're going to get or question um, of Christianity is this thing called the problem of evil, which is, you know, why, why, do good or why do bad things happen to good people is one way to put it. And this, this is a question that um, arises typically when uh, you know people are watching the news or reading social media or whatever, and they see that there's been a, a massive, well, let's just say there's been um, <clears throat> you know a tsunami or an earthquake, a natural disaster, or there's been you know a shooting, a mass shooting, so something that would be more considered you know personal evil than natural evil, um, <clears throat> whether it is this thing called the problem of evil or whether it is a question about the reliability of scripture or whether it's a question about the scientific claims that the bible makes versus what the science of today asserts um, all of these things all of these criticisms that are made involve looking at a scriptural claim and holding it up to a standard and evaluating it right so for instance, with the problem of evil, you know, why or how is it that God, if he's a loving God and, and he's all powerful, would allow for this kind of thing to happen? And so what the unbeliever or honestly, even in some cases, Christians would be saying is, I have this view of 
what God would do, or, you know, if I were God for a day, you know, they may not put it in, in those terms. This is how I would have handled the situation because if God's loving and God is all powerful, then he certainly would not have allowed this to happen. So there's this standard of, of behavior, as it were, that we hold up and we compare God against and we say, you know, God has fallen short and we don't, we don't do this explicitly necessarily. It's just, I think, embedded in our thought process. It's just like any sort of expectation you have of another person. If they don't live up to your expectation, your expectation is the standard and they've fallen short of it, right? Um, but I would say all criticisms of, of Christianity are based on some sort of a standard and an evaluation of activities of Christians or people who claim to be Christians or things that the Bible says about God, taking those behaviors and comparing them to that standard and saying, well, I can't accept that God would do this, or I can't believe you as a Christian would, would say that this is wrong because each person has their own individual standard um, of, of what's right and wrong. So you'll, you'll hear a lot of preceptors in their response back to an unbeliever say, by what standard? And the, and the, the whole point there is you are making a statement, you're making an assertion. What standard are you using when you evaluate what this behavior that you've seen or, or uh, of Christians or what you've heard described in the Bible? What is that standard? And more importantly, is that a reasonable standard for you to hold to? You know, why do I have to hold to that same standard that you do? Is it an objective standard? Does it hold true for everybody, including God? Or is it personal and subjective and just your opinion? Um, so the one of the keys to, to understanding how Presup operates is to understand that when criticisms come your way, the individual making that criticism has a standard in mind. And part of what our job is, I think, is to help them see that if they don't already understand it. And, and we can do that and should do that in a, in a gracious and loving way. Um, we're not to quarrel, you know, scripture tells us not to do that, <clears throat> but we definitely are to defend the faith. And we can do that in a loving way, but we can press the unbeliever to say, um, to give an account is another term you'll hear in precept for why they would say that standard they're using is the right one to use. I don't know if that, uh, no, helps. yeah, that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. What I guess too, like, what would you say are some of the, um, like if you would, if you were to pick a philosophical starting point, I mean, maybe not explicitly saying, Oh, everyone's postmodern, but maybe something along the lines of what in our culture, like currently, what kind of standards do you see that are being used primarily by your everyday people? Um, like I noticed you mentioned like the problem of evil and having them standards. Um, I noticed too, like a lot of, of just like these, un the uncertainties, a lot of people claim like, Oh, we just can't know. Or we don't right. know. Right. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Maybe talking about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, sure. So I, I think on the one hand, a lot of the, um, philosophical commitments that people hold to in our present culture are universal and, and people have hold to, held to them 
um, ever since, you know, Adam, <laughs> basically. Um, and then there are some other ones, I think, that are more specific to, uh, you know, a, a culture in this present day and maybe even here in the U.S. where, where I'm located, where we're located, I guess. Um, one of the things that's another foundational thing to understand about presuppositionalism, which has to do, I think, with what you're asking, is the concept of autonomy. And that is the question whether or not we, as human beings, have the ability to know things independent of God. Um, I warned you I was going to do this, right? I was going to read from Van Til. Do it, yeah. Let me me just do this here. So this is from a survey of Christian epistemology, and I think it's, yeah, it's page five. This is one of the um, older copies. Um, So Van Til is talking about the method, and um, he's going to talk about the problem that he sees or one of the the real critical questions that that needs to be answered that people just generally overlook they don't even think about it um and so here's what he has to say um he he uses the term anti-theist i think we talked before we started about some of the terminology that van till uses is maybe a little foreign um, or it might even come across as a little harsh but in essence he's talking about unbelievers when he says anti-theist so um The anti-theist is one who has made up his his mind in advance. He maintains steadfast in his conviction that there are some facts that can be known truly without God. This much is implied in the very idea of starting to see whether there is a God. So let let me just stop there. What he's saying is many people, all unbelievers, I would say, and even some believers, don't stop to think about whether or not they need to involve God in their process of knowing things. And and when I say that, I don't mean, going back to the example of, is it raining outside? I don't mean we, we have to stop and say, now, what does the Bible have to say about rain, right? So it's not necessarily an explicit evaluation of every step of the way as we, as we come to a conclusion about something. But the more we are steeped in scripture and and God's special revelation, the more he will bring to mind, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind the principles that are in scripture, the precepts, and we should be applying those to whatever situation we are in. Um, And one of those is, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There is definitely a role that God plays, a foundational role in us knowing things. I would say that all people can know things. This is another criticism of, of um, precept. Many people would say presuppositionalists are saying that unbelievers can't know things. Well, what we're actually saying is, yes, people can know things, but it's because Christianity is true. So from a thin reasoning perspective, yes, we are justified in in saying that it's raining outside without digging down into the weeds of of epistemology but it's only that way because christian you know the christian god exists and has created us in this particular way and created the universe in such a way that we can know it Um, so from that perspective it's not so much that we need to be aware of all the details of god's revelation we are Um, essentially justified in holding the beliefs that we do because we live in God's universe. But it's when we get down into the the thicker reasoning where it becomes more crucial 
um, to bring God in explicitly and talk about if Christianity is true, in other words, if we know things by virtue of thinking thoughts after God has thought them in, an, um, in a way that's analogous, as opposed to thinking that we are originating these thoughts and originating facts, then we are, um, we are being more truthful to scripture if, if we're doing that. Let me just finish the, uh, the quote here. He said, this much is implied in the very idea of starting to see whether there is a God. It will be observed that even to say that there are some facts that can be known without reference to God is already the very opposite of the Christian position. It's not necessary to say that all facts can be known without reference to God in order to have a flat denial of Christianity. The contention of Christianity is exactly that there is not one fact that can be known without God. Hence, if anyone avers that there is even one fact that can be known without God, he reasons like a non-Christian. So you, you begin to pick up some of the difficulty in, in understanding what Vandal is saying, I'm sure. Um, but essentially he's saying that even asking the question of does God exist, the implication being let's go out and figure it out and we can come to a conclusion, um, that assumes that the God of scripture does not exist because the God of scripture says that you have to, um, you have to involve his revelation in the process of knowing. You can't simply look around and pretend that you can know things without there being a creator who's created the world in such a way that you can. So any philosophical system, any apologetic method that takes the approach of, well, let's just start with ourselves and try and build from there in an autonomous manner, I would say is not a biblical approach. Um, and that's due to the nature of God and his creation. Um, and, and that would be the difference between a presuppositional approach that would say, yeah, that's very important that we keep God in the loop, as it were, from the perspective of, of evaluating claims and justifying our own beliefs. Yeah, that's that's really good. And I think that's such a helpful thing to keep in mind. And it's like, as you mentioned, you never really thought about epistemology on how we can justify, you know, our beliefs and that stuff. And it's like, you know, I used to struggle a lot with objections to the Christian faith that would just send me an emotional doubt like crazy, where I'd just be like, you know, I'd listen to debates with like William Lane Craig or these people, and they just kind of talk about, the, well, it's as highly probable that a <laughs> God exists. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's not, you know, I want Cartesian certainty, man. And that doesn't right. sound too certain. That doesn't sound too. That doesn't sound too biblical, right? Yeah, it, it, that's the first thing, right? It doesn't sound too biblical. Um, as Eli mentioned when he was on last time, you know, that, that the authors weren't trying to prove God. They just assumed that God always was. And, you know, um, right. with the scriptures, right? And it's like, and I was hearing these arguments that I just felt like no matter how good they could come off, the skeptic always is going to have a way to twist its way, twist his way out of it with more skepticism. And it just seemed like there was, there was impossible, it was impossible to gain certainty of the Christian perspective until I found presuppositional apologetics. And I'm like, okay, this actually grounds things. This makes sense yep. of, of the reality we find ourselves in. And this is the most consistent 
um, biblical method that actually I think has really helped establish me. And now when I read these objections and things, I know I'm not just before I just look at the surface level of it and just take the assertion as if it had some kind of, you know, good meaning or good argument to it. And when I never was like, well, how do they even, how can they even make sense of that, that question they're asking by what, like you mentioned earlier, by what standard right. are you judging these things? And that was just such a helpful thing for me to, to learn and grow in my understanding of. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, um, one of the things that can be really frustrating if you are a Christian and you're trying to respond to criticisms is, um, well, there's a couple things. Number one is, is the person who's hitting you with this criticism, um, what, what approach are they employing? Are they, are they being simply intellectual and laying out a case or are they, are they adding a lot of uh, rhetorical flourish is, is <laughs> I guess the term I would use, you know? So are they saying things like, well, everybody knows that, you know, there is no God. Well, you know, of course, miracles don't happen. You know, nobody believes this or most people are too, you know, there's all sorts of fallacies, informal fallacies um, <clears throat> that both Christians and, and non-believers throw out there, unfortunately. So part of this is not letting yourself be thrown off balance by um, the way in which the criticism is delivered as opposed to the criticism itself. And, and I think one way you can know that's happening is if you if you hear a criticism and and it really hits you hard right you feel like this great weight and you're like oh man i you know now some of that can be that you don't have an answer but um stop and think you know based on the delivery of that criticism to me what parts of that were actually relevant and what parts of it were just fluff we're just emotional language, right? This is a big, this is a big thing with the problem of, of evil. Um, you can hear it in the, the Bonson and Tabish debate um, because that seems to be where Eddie Tabish focused most of his attention was the cruelty of God. And um, in fact, his closing argument is just really, really emotional and, and Bonson just latches onto it and says, I'm so glad that you, you gave your argument with such emotion and such feeling because it demonstrates that you know God exists, right? Which was not what he was expecting by any means. But so that's one thing is separating the rhetoric from the actual relevant facts of, of the argument. Um, I'm forgetting what I was going to say. Give me just a second here. <laughs> there were, You're there fine. Were, there were two points I wanted to make. Um, let's keep talking and maybe it will come back to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it was uh, now I forgot, but I knew where you're going. Hang on. Happy. I'm not the only one that happens to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it was going to be along the lines of, uh, um, Oh man, that's yeah. We'll just keep talking. Again. We'll just keep talking. It'll yeah. come back. To me and <laughs> it'll, it'll oh yeah. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But oh, I guess oh, I remember what it was. I remember. Okay, go. Yeah, okay. go for it. Here we go. So we were talking about what what are some things to be aware of if you're an unbeliever and you're getting hit with criticisms. One is the the delivery, the the language. The other is this, and this is I've heard this from a lot of different people who are are into apologetics and have a hard time with precepts. So I think it's really key. <clears throat> we are not used to thinking about 
things in a world at a worldview level, right? We think about facts like, is it raining outside? Are we doing a podcast? Is there water in my glass? Am I hungry? Whatever the case may be. <clears throat> and a lot of times we will consider the fact of God's existence just like any other fact, um, as opposed to part of a greater philosophical system and entire worldview. And this gets us into the transcendental argument. We're not going to get way down into it, but the, the presuppositional approach is a two-step approach. It's saying, you know, you, Mr. or Miss Unbeliever, have a worldview, and I have a worldview. So we're standing here talking about, I don't know, evil, let's say, or, or pain or suffering and why that's bad. So if Christianity is true, I have an answer to that. If your worldview is true, I'm going to say you don't have an answer. And what I mean by that, they have a thin reasoning answer. They don't have a thick reasoning answer. In other words, they can't, their, their conclusions are based on some presuppositions that themselves are floating in midair. They're not grounded. There's the analogy of the diving board on concrete, where the concrete is, is the foundation. Um, Van Til talks about the man made of water and in, a, in an ocean of water, trying to build a ladder of water, right? Just to, to talk about how, how impossible it is for um, an autonomous reasoning person to be able to provide those foundations. Um, so the, the approach is to say, if Christianity is true, I have an answer for that. If Christianity is not true, there is no answer for that. So it is setting up this dichotomy, as it were, that there's two choices. There's Christianity, and then there's not Christianity. Now, there's there's a lot of debate going on or has been going on about, well, is that a valid way to look at things? Because obviously, there's lots of different worldviews out there besides Christianity, right? There's atheism, and there's um, agnosticism, and Buddhism, and Hinduism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> but by that token, there's different flavors of Christianity as well. Right. So um, at the end of the day, the presuppositionalists, if they're arguing from a biblical perspective, is going to say via Colossians, what is it, 2 8, I think, that there is a philosophy according to Christ and there's a philosophy according to the world. There are there are two options. Ultimately, um, at the end of the day, there's just two. There's variations on a theme, but there is autonomous thinking, which means thinking that does not take the Christian God into account. And then there's Christian thinking or thinking Christianly, as, as Bonson would say. And so that's the reason for the approach we take. If Christianity is true, I have an answer to this. If Christianity is not true, I don't have an answer to this. And the challenge that, that we all run into, and you're going to constantly run into, is the unbeliever saying, well, I understand if the Bible is true, then you have an answer for that. But how do I know the Bible's true? And when they do that, they are trying to be neutral. They're trying to reason autonomously. They're not understanding that the answer to the question is that, well, I know it's true because if Christianity is true, I have an answer. And if it's not true, I don't. And, and I, I mean more by that than just I don't have an answer. I'm not saying that they just don't happen to know the answer. The, the claim here is that the existence of God is necessary for anything at all to be intelligible, for anything to make sense. 
So it's not just the particular subject you're talking about. It's any subject that you pick. It's any given that the unbeliever will say they have some level of confidence in. You can use that and you can say, well, if Christianity is true, this makes sense, this given. If Christianity is not true, then it doesn't. And so it's a very grandiose claim, no doubt about it. Um, it's not a minimalistic view. It's not an Occam's razor view by any means. It's a God has revealed all of this to us, and this is how we are to think and how we are to reason, not just in an apologetic setting, but in everyday lives. Does that, does that help? Yes. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think it's the boldness of the transcendental argument that I think it's just like, you know, either with Christ or against Christ or, you know, them black and white statements, I think, or them claims, you know, because I hear a lot of times, well, well, that's just a claim. That's not an argument to say that, you know, uh, you know, you have to presuppose Christianity for, you know, what's the what's the uh, uh intelligibility thing um right it's the precondition of of intelligibility of experience right yeah and that and they're just like well that's a claim that's not an argument um as if we have to go back and regress a step further to say like you just mentioned well how do we know the bible is true and it's like well the impossibility to contrary and they're like well that's just you're just making that assertion but you're not demonstrating that um, you know, I hear that objection quite a bit. Or, sure. Or this is circular and, reasoning. That's question. Right, right. That's another one. Yeah. Well, the, to the credit of some people, um, a lot of times presuppers, in fact, are not making an argument. <laughs> they just make they just make a statement or an assertion um, and, and they don't back it up. But the way you back it up is to do this two step process. I mean, that that is that is where the what's called the transcendental premise of the argument is defended. Um, here's, here's, I think a good way, uh, a good analogy or, um, another argument that sort of takes on the same form. And that is Descartes. I think therefore I am. Um, and, and it's, <clears throat> it's not necessarily, um, appropriate to state it that way. It's, it's more like I'm going to start with the, um, with the given that I am thinking, well, what must be the case in order for me to think? Well, I must exist, right? Because like I can't think unless I exist. You can't you can't rationally state the premise I am thinking and then deny your existence. Because the first word in that premise is what? I. I am thinking, right? So you're already you're starting with everything you need to show that in order for that to be intelligible. Um, I, I, I have to exist. I must exist. If I'm going to, if I'm going to claim that I'm thinking, it would be irrational for me to doubt my existence. So it is an indirect approach to reasoning. It's not saying I think, therefore I am. It's not a, a direct thing like that, where I start with the premise, I am thinking, and then I conclude, therefore I am. It's if I I'm going to say that I'm thinking, I must first assume that I exist in order to do that thinking. So it is, it's an indirect approach. Now, that's very intuitive, I think, to most people. I think most people would agree that um, it doesn't make sense to say I'm thinking and then question whether or not I exist. That just, that doesn't make sense. Um, so what, 
Christian precept is saying is, you know, I think therefore God exists. It's a much broader claim. It's because our existence is a precondition for our ability to think. God's existence on a much greater level is a precondition for our ability to do anything at all, to think, to criticize Christianity, right? That's why you'll hear it stated, anti-theism presupposes theism. In other words, you can't make sense of the claim God does not exist unless God actually exists. Mm. And again, these, these are probably things you won't get into with, with the, the person you're talking to over coffee, um, but I think they're, they're good concepts to have in mind um, because number one, they'll give you confidence um, that the approach you're using is right. And number two, if, if they do go there, then you'll, you'll have the ability to, you know, to answer those questions. Very good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, being a presuppositional apologist, I mean, not not on the level you or Chris Bold or Eli are on, but I mean, practically, you know, I use this with coworkers and stuff. You know, I have encounters, and um, they'll they'll make statements that, well, how do you know, you know, the Bible's true? I'm like, well, if it wasn't, you know, you couldn't make sense of anything. And I've been trying to think, okay, yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a true statement, right? But how, what would be maybe a more practical way of saying them deeper transcendental mm -hmm. statements to, you know, right. the guy at coffee or whatever the case, a coworker? Yeah. I think a lot of it depends on, on what they give you. Right. Okay. And so I'm, I'm using the term given a lot. And if you, um, if you go through um, Bonson's lectures on the transcendental argument, which you probably know you can get all of those things for no cost now on Covenant Media Foundation. They've um, they've worked out a deal and they've they've released those. So I don't remember how many parts it is, and it's very long and it's very involved. But um, one of the things he says is that the way that the transcendental argument actually unfolds is this: um, the unbeliever or the skeptic, as you'll hear them commonly called. Um, what you try to do is you try to get them to give you something like um, that murder of that child was wrong, not just I did I don't like it or it bothers me or um, it's uncomfortable to think about that is just, you know, wrong. You, you want to get them to give you something that they're not going to back away from later, because the whole idea is you take that given and you show that if their worldview were true, that they would not be justified in being as upset as they are, you know, if, if it's a question about, you know, evil, for instance. Um, but if Christianity is true, then yes, not only are you um, warranted in being that upset, but there's an answer for your question, right? And that, that's why it's important to, <clears throat> to get them to commit to something, because when you show them that that only makes sense on Christianity, you don't want them to come along and say, oh, well, yeah, I guess I don't really believe that after all, right? So part of it is getting them to really commit to something. And then the next step is, I would say, only going as deep as you need to, to point out to them that what they're saying really doesn't make any sense from a from their perspective. And you, you do need to get below, a little bit below the thin reasoning level in order to do that. You need to talk about what they are presupposing, what 
what are the concepts or the um, the laws or the ideas that they are holding to as true that make their statement rational in the first place. Mm. Yeah, that's really great. And and I, you know, even when um, you know, some of the objections I hear to the the transcendental argumentation to or tag is like kind of a always throwing kind of hypotheticals, you know, at the situation. Well, it's like, well, yeah, you could say that about the Muslim God, or you could say, yep. you know, you mentioned earlier, but you could say that about, you know, the fairy, the polytheist fairy and the gnomes, yep. or you could say about anything. But the difference, if I'm correct, is the fact that the Christian worldview isn't hypothetical. It's a reality that we can actually bank on that claim that we're making, whereas the fairy maybe or that, you know, the gnomes couldn't. Right. Yeah, so there's definitely a difference between the abstract and the concrete, right? Christianity is a concrete worldview. So there, there's a couple things about the transcendental argument that make it different. One is that it is, an, it is arguing, it's world-directed, it's arguing for an entire worldview. It's not just arguing for one small thing that's within the universe. Um, another is that it is based upon a concrete worldview, a revelation that we can hold in our hands and we can read. So to your point about somebody saying, well, I can say that about any other thing. Well, yes, you can, in fact, say that. The question is, is what you're saying true, right? And that, that's where the work comes in. It's one thing to say, well, you know, Islam is, um, you know, the existence of Allah is the precondition of, of the intelligibility of experience. Okay. I hear you. That That's an assertion. I'm not just going to dismiss it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to show me. And the way you show them from a Christian perspective is you look at the content of the Christian worldview, because that's, that's what we're comparing after all. We are not able, we're not able to be neutral. There's no way to step outside of all of this and look in objectively at these brute facts and come to a conclusion about what's real or not. We're working from inside the box, as it were. And the only way that we can know anything about reality is because there is an all-knowing um, creator who created it all, who has revealed himself to us and has done so in such a way that it gets through our subjectivity and, and the fact that we make mistakes, et cetera, in, in our reasoning. So yes, let, let them say, and, and this is one thing, it's kind of a debate tactic, I don't know, but I find to be useful, and that is, you know, if somebody says something like that, agree with them, right? Because number one, you're going to catch them off guard. It's just it's like, oh, wait a minute, I can? Well, if, if that's the case, well, then I can say that Islam is, is true. And, and then you hit them with, well, what you're saying from the perspective of the argument you're making is valid. The question is, is your argument sound? Are your premises true? And the way you evaluate that from a transcendental perspective is you look at the content of the worldview. In Christianity, you have a God who is, you know, all powerful, all knowing, who has created us. Um, you know, we are sinners, there's a redeemer. So. You, you, you have to keep it all in mind, although you can only talk about one thing at a time, it all fits together and you are always defending all of it as true. 
Um, so whatever whatever challenge they bring up, whether it has to do with with evil or creation or the age of the universe or mathematics or um, physics or you know, it really doesn't matter. All of it comes back to there has to be a worldview, a philosophical system in place to make sense of whatever claim you're making, regardless of your level of education, regardless of the field of study you're in, how young or how old you are. We all ultimately have to answer the same questions when it comes to making sense of what we're saying. And that gets into, um, you know, defending the Christian system of thought, right? I, I right. think Eli's mentioned this to me before, the, the idea of, you know, we don't deal with objections in a piecemeal fashion, right? Uh, right. Like we don't step outside of our, our, our Christian worldview in order to try to answer objections and things of that nature, right? We, we stay within our own Christian system. Right. We, we stay within our system because there's, um, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there, there isn't any other way to do it. Um, it that's just the nature of, of being a creature. And, and we can see this when we talk with people who say they are being neutral, even those who are putting aside the majority of the presuppositions that, that people typically bring uh, to the table when they're talking about epistemology. I mean, there's there's one thing that every person, regardless of the epistemology they're putting forward, is going to have to presuppose, and that is they exist. Not even necessarily they are or are not a brain in a vat, or there may be other an external world or not. They have to start at least with they exist, and even that claim I exist and how I know that. The only way to know that I exist is is if God exists. So let me put it this way, and it'll sound a little funny, but I am more certain of God's existence than I am of my own existence. Now that, it does sound strange, <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is in order for an argument, like I think therefore I am, to be able to function, there are things that must be in place for, you know, there are assumptions that are being made even in that argument. Um, you know, he, namely he's, he's using laws of logic um, and he's applying them to a reality that is not merely tautological. That's not just a set of rules. It's, it's an actual external reality. And so the question becomes, well, why are you applying or how can you apply those rules of logic to your existence? You know, you're, you're just assuming, well, number one, you're assuming you're thinking in, in the first place. Um, I mean, this is what philosophers do, right? They ask silly questions and they, they spend a lot of time thinking about them. But um, <clears throat> what might be silly to the average person, there, there's actually, there's actually good reason to, to think through those things. Mm. Yeah, you earlier, you mentioned brute facts. And, you know, I know Bonson says, you know, the myth of neutrality. Um, often I hear, you know, I think we've kind of walked through a little bit of this, but um, you know, when people say, oh, you know, you Christians, you just have a confirmation, but or you, you just have biases. And, um, you know, of course, everyone does, right? <laughs> um, yeah, are biases bad? Why yeah, are they bad? Right? By what by what standard? Right? I mean, it, it's a little, um, I don't know, people get tired of hearing that. But that's really what you're asking them each time. So just change up the way you ask it, right? Don't just keep saying, by what standard, by what standard, because people get tired of that. Um, or don't keep saying, how do you know, how do you know, how do you know? That, that, that can be very tiring as well. 
Um, so you can ask the same question, just ask it in different ways or. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you could talk to uh, like, you know, I know there's been some concern over mixing, you know, or like mediate uh, revelation and immediate revelation or general revelation and special revelation as a presuppositional mm -hmm. apologist, how yep. should we view general revelation in comparison or complementarian of, of with, with special revelation? How do we view those two different revelational okay. aspects? God, you know, reveals. Yeah, I think that's, that is like a theological question. And, and I would say that, you know, general revelation is sufficient for us to be held responsible and special revel but but not enough to to um give us knowledge of of salvation and what's involved in that it's special revelation um, that god has given to say you know you already know i exist and you know what kind of god i am and you know that you are guilty before me now here's the <clears throat> here's the answer here's the solution so for, in, in a very basic sense, that's what I would say is, is the distinction between general and special. Obviously, special has special revelation, you know, is scripture. It's <clears throat> um, it is typically how we think about it, but it's um, it's any revelation that comes from the mouth of God um, that that isn't nature. Right. That isn't. Um, like the the universe around us and what we see and <clears throat> and even you know the laws of of the way the universe operates those would all be general revelation where a special revelation is what's been inscripturated and given to us mm. yeah both useful right um right <clears throat> yeah um man yeah this is good I, dallas you've been quiet and i know that's probably because you're just learning and figuring this out but do you have anything that's coming to mind at all that you want to ask brian sorry i checked that a little bit goes my wife just got home but there was something that's so good but yeah like i said it flipped from the brain so if it comes back yeah i'll bring it in but i'm mostly soaking right now okay. i'd say half of it but, good yeah, yeah just like that something's over my head it means there's more to learn you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's really it's really a challenge especially with this kind of um, topic to communicate in a short amount of time at, at so that people with different levels of experience um can all get it right <laughs> the first time it ends up being i think a um a cycle and you know maybe you go back and you listen to it and then you come back and ask questions you know i'll, I'll listen to um to some philosophers out there talking about something that i thought i understood pretty good and then i'll um i'll be listening to a podcast or i'll be reading something and i'll just i'll have to keep going back and back and and it's because i just don't have um as much experience with the terms that are being used i haven't had a chance to think through the concepts associated with those terms to even grasp a hold of what they mean necessarily. So, I mean, I think it's a common thing in, in any walk of life. You, you know, you go into a, a different area than what you're used to and it's, it's all new. So. Yeah. I started re-listening to all these podcasts because I feel like a lot of my time I'm like, ah, oh, do I have a question? Do I have a question? So I actually got through two today, Nate, while I was mowing the lawn. Well, one and a half, cause they're all super long, but I, this <laughs> yeah. is one I'm going to again, because 
a lot of this is flying past me, but I feel like I'm getting little pieces, you know? Mm. Yeah. One of the things that, that Chris and I have tried to do with Revelationary is keep our podcast to about an hour. And <clears throat> um, the first 20 minutes of that is just us making dad jokes. <laughs> so you can usually skip past the first part of it. Um, but what, what we're trying to do on ours is to each podcast dedicate half of it to like a basic principle of presuppositionalism. So like we've talked about autonomy, we've talked about the blockhouse method, which is the piecemeal thing that you, you were talking about earlier. Um, we've talked about the problem of evil briefly and what a revelational epistemology is. So that's, that's typically the first half is what I'm doing. And then um, Dr. Chris Bolt comes in the second half and, and just throws in all these really deep ideas. And, and we just chat about that. So all that to say that I think it's good to, um, to grab just a little bit and chew on it for a while. You know, for me, at least it's like a 20 to 30 minute um, lecture or that's how much reading I do. And then it's just great to go off and think about that and while you're doing other things. And then, you know, if you've got questions, come back and listen to it again or watch it again. And um, that's how I learn the best anyway. So, yeah, I, I've definitely been learning uh, the best through means of, you know, meeting people like you, Eli, and and actually having an engage, like an engage, like an interactive engagement with kind of like trying to process this stuff in my head, you know, yeah. because a lot of times I'm like, this is sounds too good to be true. So maybe <laughs> it's not true. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, or, or just the bold, uh, you know, the statements, uh, without, you know, the Lord, you can't, you can't make sense of anything. It's like, well, yeah, uh, that sounds pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. I think there is a danger with precept that, that you can, once you start to understand the power of it, <clears throat> that you kind of stop <laughs> and don't continue to go on and, and think through and process through, you know, um, and, and continue to learn more about it. And I think a lot of times interacting with other people, other Christians, for instance, or, or unbelievers is a great way to force you into that. I think there are a number of presuppers who come out and make grandiose claims and then never back them up. And they're just, they're just parroting what they've heard before. They've seen how it worked in other situations. And they think just by saying by what standard, um, and the person goes, well, what do you mean? Aha, I, you know, I got, I gotcha. Well, no, that's, that's not honoring to the Lord, first of all. Um, and it, you know, from a intellectual perspective, it's not, it's not being genuine. You're, you're not actually, you haven't, you haven't finished the work, right? You know, all of this is to, is to glorify God and to speak the truth, um, of, of scripture with the hope that God will grant them repentance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, that's been a growing experience for me is like, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm naturally more on the skeptical, uncertain, you know, my mind's just always like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know? Um, and a part of it, I think is like me thinking I'm trying to be humble, <laughs> but maybe <laughs> I'm just trying to be overly rational. That's not pleasing the Lord, you know? Um, but whatever the case, yeah, I mean, this has been great. I know we're coming up. Well, it's, you know, we got a couple of minutes yet, but um, I mean, any concluding, uh, you know, just stuff you want to mention? I mean, anything come to mind that you'd want to say? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if there are any more like 
basic concepts that are that are good to know. I mean, there's there's really quite a bit to it. Um, it's not a silver bullet. It's just it's not magic like that. There's still work that needs to be done, and I just encourage people <clears throat> to really think hard about whether um, whether the last apologetic encounter they had was God glorifying, whether they um, whether they kept Christ first. And whether they argued from the truth of Christianity instead of to the truth of Christianity, um, but yeah, I, I mean, obviously we could we could talk for hours about this, um, but uh, nothing else comes to mind. <laughs> Last thing you said actually was a good thing for me. So that little tidbit, I like that. Great, <laughs> great. So cool. if 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 someone's you know hearing this for the first time all this presuppositional apologetic stuff. I mean, I mean, we, I'm sure our listeners have heard with Eli, but what, and what would be some, just, if you could think of like one or two books or one or two resources where someone that's, you know, this is all brand new to them that they, that they could turn to, to be like, okay, what should I read? What, what could I do to understand this better? Yeah. I was just looking behind me. Um, you know, the book that I started with was a book by Greg Bonson called always ready. And it is probably one of the, the clearest, but thinnest, thinnest. In, in other words, it doesn't go into a lot of great depth. It doesn't support, I mean, he has a, quite a bit of scripture in there, um, but he doesn't have the space to deal with a lot of objections. Um, so I'm, you know, most of what I'm going to recommend is going to be Bonson. I know there are other, um, other authors out there who are just as good, but um, I would say start with always ready and then go to um, precept stated and defended. Um, I think there's another, I think there's another uh, second edition, not a second edition, but an additional part of a series of, of books that's going to be coming out soon. Um, presuppositionalism stated and defended spends a lot of time talking about autonomy um, and the problems with it. And that's a really good thing to understand, I think, as a, as a presuppositionalist, because you begin to see, no matter how compelling or convincing the other person might sound at first, if you're sitting there thinking, are they trying to reason autonomously, um, then you're, you're going to see that they are. And the problem with autonomous reasoning is, um, well, it, it's tied into the blockhouse thing, the piecemeal. We have an entire worldview, philosophical system that has come to us, prepackaged as it were, um, from an all-knowing, all-powerful being who created us. We don't have to put the pieces together. We don't have to sit there. Um, it, it's not that it's not helpful to do systematic theology and, and understand how the pieces go together, but we accept God's revelation on his authority. Scripture is self-attesting. It's authoritative because it speaks to us directly from God. That is our starting point. If you are an autonomous thinker, then you have to make all the pieces fit together. And the challenge is, and what makes it impossible, is that you have to be using the pieces while you're fitting all the pieces together, right? Because what you're talking about is, I'm putting together pieces of a puzzle that explain my process of thinking and my being and, and everything else. So it must accurately describe me as I'm going through the process of putting this puzzle together. So you, you can you can think of the challenge involved in um, being able to pull together 
theories of knowledge and, and reality and morality and um, every other aspect of philosophy in such a way that not only are they internally consistent, but they are explanatory of, of you know, the problems that you're trying to solve or the things that you're trying to account for. So yeah, so always ready and then precept stated and defended. Gotcha. Yeah. And um, what was the newer book that they published against all opposition? Is that a Bonson book that came out? That, or is that that's a good question. I haven't, I haven't heard the title. That might be the second one. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure either. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, this is great. And I don't want to hold you over time. You know, we got two minutes, um, <laughs> but uh, I always try to respect the, the guest time and um, be thoughtful that I know people are married and have children and uh, animals or whatever the case, but yep. um, yeah, but this has been super helpful. I, I mean, especially for me, I, I'm just trying to process all this stuff and it's, it's like, you know, it's definitely apologetic methodology. It's like taken me, I mean, it's been like probably a year or so now, but it's like, just, I have to keep coming back and like kind of yep. rehashing it and rehashing it and re and, but it just continually makes more and more and more and more sense um, than the other ones ever have for me. You know, mm -hmm. other ones might be easier to understand and whatnot, but they're just not biblical, you know? Yep. So cool. But yeah, this has been really great. Um, and uh, so yeah. Any concluding thoughts? I know. So you have, you know, I mentioned uh, you guys can find uh, Brian Knapp on revelationary uh, revelationary.org, correct? That's right. That's <laughs> it. And you can yeah, I shouldn't have come up with such a difficult domain name, but it, <laughs> no. is, what it is. <laughs> yeah. When I first saw it, I thought it was revelation or no, this revelational or something. You know, I, I missed it the first time, but yeah, revelationary.org. And you, uh, you can find Brian Knapp and his and his good buddy Chris Bolt. Um, it's really if you guys want to continue to grow and understand this stuff, these are the guys you I would highly recommend. Included and I, even Eli Yell has been over there with you guys. Uh, yep. uh, also another really great brother. Um, you know he's really man. I'm so thankful for Eli because he's brought that gentle, gentle yep. and uh, respectful spirit to this whole thing. That yeah, I think was has. much necessary and much needed. Agreed. Yep. And uh, so, yeah. So any concluding thoughts you want to make, Brian? No, I, I, other than thank you for having me on. I, um, I'm glad we were able to finally, you know, find the time that worked for both of us. And uh, I just appreciate you hosting me and letting me um, talk <laughs> and share yeah. what, um, share what I've, I've been taught from, uh, from others. So, yeah, no, love people that will come and talk to us and tell us awesome stuff about God. So you get a plus on this one. Uh, amen. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Praise God. Sure. Well, with that being said, uh, this is rooted in revelation um, where we do seek to make God's revelation, our foundation. And uh, this has been a great time with Brian Knapp until next time. God bless. <laughs>